This episode was originally a live stream on YouTube. You could find out about all my content and how to follow and support me at erichunley.com. I hope to hear from you. And now, on with the show. My name is Eric Hunley, and this is Unstructured, where we have dynamic and formal conversations with some amazing people. Okay, we are live. Today, I have an unusual guest. Mark Sullivan is a, I would say, a mega best-selling author of especially one book. It's not that dissimilar to YouTube in the sense that I'm guessing that one book overshadows almost the rest of the connect- collection combined. Is that a fair statement, Mark? I think that's a fair statement. The so earlier you- books were all were all thrillers and mystery stories, and this is a shift into historical fiction. I'm doing fantastic, actually. Okay, well, it's good to have you. And I, I think it's really fascinating on that, especially that that mega hit, you know, aspect of it. You you you're doing it. You're you've got a great series, well respected, everything else, and then just to have that one crazy. I, I would almost call it going viral. That's the video world uh, terms. Mm-hmm. Um, you seem to really knock it out of the park with um, under a scarlet sky. Well, thank you. Uh, yeah, it was. Um very gratifying. I worked on that book for almost a decade and uh, it was a very much a passion project. I knew it was going to touch people because the story had touched me in such a profound way. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that part of it didn't surprise me. What surprised me was the viral aspect of it, that just the tremendous word of mouth that happened very fast and people were telling all their friends and all their parents and cousins and what have you to read the book and it just kept going and it got into the book clubs and then you know one a lot of people were avid readers they are members of two three four book clubs so if they like one book it gets shared and shared and shared so well i love that and that by the way that was the one statistic that really was so impressive to me and that was not only the most purchased but the most read Right, Kindle, and the reason why I'm so impressed with that is that I tend to be a a book hoarder, mm-hmm. and a lot of people I think are Kindle hoarders, especially. They're like, "Oh, we get it on sale for ninety nine cents," and all of a sudden, you know, they have forty books that they've been buying, but they never really get to them because, well, they're not in the mood at the time to read the book because, it, but they purchased the book, and I the fact it. that people were not just buying it but they were reading it, I think, mm-hmm. is highly significant. Uh, yeah, I do too. And they also listened to it. It was a big hit on on audiobooks. And I've oh, gotten sure. letters from people all over. They were one family was on vacation in Iceland and listened to it as they drove their Land Rover around. So you, you just, it's amazing. It really is. And that's how I consume all my books now, too. And on that audible note, I knew that that book was explosive because I think I saw 262,000. Um, ratings and reviews on it and like uh, Jim Butcher who's a very famous author I greatly enjoy I don't think his entire collection has that many ratings or reviews so right it's it's staggering staggering numbers it is and I'm I I'm grateful for it every day Uh, the fact that people cared enough about the book to want to read it or review it is simply remarkable because they're taking time out of their day and I know it and uh, I try never to lose sight of that. 
Now, what I also found was interesting is I did start to dig a little bit more in, into the background, and I I especially appreciate the fact that it was a 10-year overnight sensation type of thing. I, mm-hmm. I, I love to harp on the average overnight sensation is 10 years. Yeah, I would say 30 years, to be honest. Okay. <laughs> yeah, well, oh, was, there you go. That was 30 um, years to an overnight sensation, so there you go. I was writing for 30 years, so it just didn't happen until you know about 28 years into it. And, you know, it does happen. I've had Brian Freeman on, and I think he had four books in the drawer and 20 years for him before he met the right person at the party to get him to the agent that actually picked up the agent who was a friend of a friend. And uh, there's so many fickle things. That have Um, to come into place. That's correct. Now, what's interesting, though, is that you were starting to build concurrently success. I mean, you can't really call writing with James Patterson slumming it. No, I, I loved working with James Patterson. It was one of the great miracles of my life to be asked to write with him. And, you know, I went into it thinking I knew a lot about writing commercial fiction and I really didn't. Uh, so that first year and a half writing with him was like, you know, twice a month was like going to a master class in commercial fiction. And he really knows stories better than any person I've ever encountered. And his ability to keep them all going in his head is its simply remarkable. So I learned a lot from him. Now, an interesting question or thought about Patterson is I, um, I'm kind of a believer that James Patterson is almost more of an industry than he is an author anymore. I, I would say he's more of a, well, he still writes, first of all. Uh, but he is, I would describe him as more of like a television or movie producer in which okay. he has an interest in these stories, which is quite common in, in Hollywood for a producer to come up with, you know, a 10 page treatment of a story and then hand it off to a screenwriter. That's quite common. And mm-hmm. um, I think he took some of that uh, from his experiences in Hollywood and, you know, tried to make it work with novel writing and, with the two of us working, it worked great. Uh, I, I had nothing but admiration for the guy, and I learned a ridiculous amount about writing and storytelling from him. So it was that's, a wonderful experience. That's awesome, and I think he led the way. I mean, he, he's the first person I can think of who really did that. I mean, I would argue that Tom Clancy did it all the way to his death, and it's now going beyond his death now. It's yeah. still going on, right. and others, but it does feel like James Patterson was the first one to really have that model in the publishing world. Right. And to ramp it up the way he did over time, you know, it didn't start out that way, but he just began to work. And it was almost like he was trying to see how many stories he could remember at once. But, you know, I've been in his office and you walk in and at one time I counted 28 different projects on, laid out on a credenza and a big L shaped all the way around the room. <laughs> That's totally insane. Now mm-hmm. I wanted to bring it up because it's interesting. You came across the story of under the scarlet sky, and I definitely will be going to the new book. I just want mm-hmm. to get the foundation laid out because I feel like it's really important and it enabled mm-hmm. everything. Yes. Um, you were kind of at a low point from my understand. Mm-hmm. Can you go into that and share? I was uh, in February of 2006 on a Saturday. I had the worst moment of my life. 
I was driving on a snowy highway, uh, going to Costco of all places. And my mind was whirling with three big thoughts. My little brother who had drunk himself to death shortly before, um, a book that I published that tanked in the United States and this long lingering business dispute that took us to the point of personal bankruptcy. And as I was driving, I realized I was worth more dead than alive. And I considered driving into a bridge abutment, you know, middle of a snowstorm, no one would suspect suicide. And I didn't do it. I saw my wife and kids, you know, distinctly in my mind. But I, I got to the Costco parking lot as just torn up as I've ever been in my life. And I put my head on the steering wheel and I begged the universe and God for a story, something to give me purpose and meaning. And I go into Costco and I do my thing and I go home and my wife is not feeling well. And she says, uh, you have to go to dinner at our friends, the Robinsons tonight. And I said, I, I'm not going to any dinner. Now she has no idea of the crisis that I'm in. Mm -hmm. And uh, she says, you have to, we've canceled on them three times. Go, if you're not feeling it after an hour, excuse yourself and come home. So I go, and 20 minutes into this dinner party, a perfect stranger starts telling me the story of Pino Lella, this 17-year-old kid who led Jews escaping Nazi-occupied Italy over the Alps into Switzerland during the winter of 43-44, and then through a series of remarkable circumstances, becomes a spy inside the German high command. And I'm like, excuse me? You know, that's, I was, we said, we would have heard this story. It's amazing. And and the person who told it to me said, well, he's alive. And I go, he's, how old is he? And 78, about to be 79. So I go home with a little bit of a spring in my step. My wife asks what's going on. And I say, you know, I, I think I'm going to take the last of our money and go to Italy and chase a 60-year-old war story. And my wife being my wife, she said, well, of course you are. And I called up, uh, got tracked down Pinolella's phone number in Italy. He speaks fluent Italian and, uh, and, and French and English. Oh. And um, so I was lucky in that respect. And uh, I said I wanted to come to Italy to, to talk with him and maybe write a book about him. And he said, well, why would you want to do that? And I said, <laughs> because you're a hero. And he's like, I, no, I'm, I'm, I'm no hero. I'm more of a coward. And by then, you know, all my story telling instincts are going up that there's something to this. This is much more than a straightforward hero story. And six weeks later, I go, I uh, get off the plane in Milan. There's this big strapping guy. He takes me out to this little De Chevaux Citroën and gets in it. It's like a VW bug. And he proceeds to drive the thing like a Ferrari through the streets of Italy. And it was the most brilliant driving I've ever seen. And course this becomes very important in the book you know <laughs> so anyway uh, i spent three uh weeks with him and listening to his story about the last two years of world war ii um profoundly affected me you know what he had gone through at 17 made my own issue seem smaller and smaller and smaller and his philosophy about tragedy and grief and life itself really unlocked something in me and changed me in a very deep way. And I left Italy, you know, vowing to tell the story to as many people as I could. And uh, I just didn't think it was going to take me a decade to work on it. Um, but, you know, it's, it, I believe that everything happens in its time. Mm. And I don't think it could have happened earlier. I wasn't that 
kind of writer. I had to become a different kind of writer to tell that story. And what was interesting is that after the book came out and, and, and it became a, a big hit and, and it's been translated into 37 languages and um, it's going to be made into a seven part, you know, limited series with Tom Holland. And those things were all amazing. Wow. But the things that really rewards me are these letters I get and quite often from people who are either deeply depressed or suicidal when they pick the book up and it changes them. It changes their whole perspective on things. And that's been the most fulfilling thing that's ever happened to me as a writer. Um, so when in the wake of the publication of um, the last, I'm sorry, of Beneath the Scarlet Sky, a lot of people were telling me, you know, you'll never find another story like this. And I was like, <laughs> oh, I don't know. I, I don't think I went through what I went through to learn and teach myself how to write historical fiction, uh, not to do it again. And sure enough, very quickly, I was getting letters, emails from people saying, you know, tell this story, do this. You know, you're the right person to, to bring my grandmother's story to life or what have you. And a lot of them were really good, but I figured out quite quickly that I had to have a filter. What was I looking for, right? And when I went back and thought about Beneath the Scarlet Sky and why it touched so many people, I realized that the story itself was inherently moving, you know, inspiring, uh, healing potentially transformative to readers. And that those four words became my uh, five words, actually, potentially. <laughs> um, those five words became my uh, filter. And I was looking for something that met that standard. And it wasn't until November of 2017, about five or six months after Beneath had been published, and I was doing a presentation about Pinalella in front of, of all people, the noontime rotary in Bozeman, Montana, my hometown where I live. And um, after my presentation, this retired dentist comes up to me and says, do you know the Martell family? And I said, you mean like the construction people? Because they own this big construction company here in Bozeman and work all over the Northern Rockies. And I said, I know of them, but I don't know them. And he said, the entire time I was reading Beneath the Scarlet Sky, I just couldn't help but think of Martells and what they went through to get to America. And I said, all right. And he said, you really need to hear this story. It's, it's, it's remarkable. And I went, okay. So two days later, I have the address of Bill Martell. And um, I plug it into my nav. And it's like two miles from my house. Uh, and I follow the directions. And it tells me to take a left into this older neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And I drive in and I feel this odd sensation and I get to the driveway, Bill's driveway, and I get out and it hits me. I can't be 200, 250 yards from the dinner party where I heard Pino Lilla's story. And so I go to the, the door saying, you know, oh, please let this be good, you know. And I knock on the door and Bill invites me in. And within 10 minutes, I'm sitting forward. And within an hour, I know I'm telling it because it meets all, all the criteria. It's moving, it's inspiring, it's healing, it's transformative. And that's the story I wanted to tell. So um, I started researching. I went and the story basically is about this young family of refugees who in a Conestoga wagon pulled by two horses try to outrun the Soviet Red Army while under the protection of Nazi SS officers who participated in the Holocaust. Yeah, which That's, is 
which okay and that's definitely yeah. i want to start digging into all yeah. of that because um there are so much meat to this story to mm-hmm. this time mm-hmm. to these uh to the perspectives because i i feel like it's all about a lot of choices yes. that people have to make and none of them are good and Correct. none of them and and it'd be really easy to judge people for making choices right. and we spend a lot of time not judging people right i mean a whole lot of time right and i shared this with a, a friend of mine that he would probably enjoy too because we're always talking about how conflicted we are in trying to understand what people will do or not do. Right. And I wanted to dig into it a little bit. And can you tell me about the ethnic Germans in Ukraine and how they came about? Mm -hmm. I'd love to talk about that, that period without you spoiling all of the book. It's It's important to understand. So the Martels are descendants of ethnic Germans who were invited to move from Germany to what is currently Ukraine by Catherine the Great, who was the empress of of Russia. And Catherine the Great knew what a lot of people knew was that the most fertile ground in the world, or some of it, is in Ukraine. It's just, it's an incredible place to grow things. But the serfs at the time in the, this would be the late 18th, early 19th century, were incapable of bringing in big harvests. They just didn't know how to do it. And so the Germans did. And she made them uh, healthy officers of uh, offers of land and 30 years taxation free. So these people moved on mass and they started building these colonies that looked just like a little German town out in the middle of the steppes in Ukraine. And um, they lived for close to a century very well, more than a century, uh, the Martels, until the Bolshevik Revolution. Is this similar, um, to interrupt, is this similar like uh, land grants that we had in the United States where they they wanted people to settle out the West and and race as like X land, here you go? Right. It was like that, but this was really having to do with, you know, being from the north of Russia, uh, Catherine the Great understood that if there wasn't good crops, in the Ukraine, then Northern Russia would starve. So it was very much a vehicle for her to get enough grain to feed her people. Because by this time, you know, she's already seen what happens in the French Revolution, you know, mm-hmm. when they stop, you know, there's no bread for the people, let them eat cake. Those people get their heads cut off. And mm-hmm. Catherine Great realized this and decided that the better, the better choice was to, instead of starving my people, grow more food. So in they come, and it works really well for, like, as I said, for 100, 125 years for the Martels. And the Bolshevik Revolution happens, and very quickly the world gets turned upside down. Okay, so these people who were good at what they did were now all of a sudden suspects of the state, right, because they knew how to do things. And people who knew how to do things under the early days of communism in Russia, you were perched. Yeah. Which is ironic because it was supposedly the workers' party, but people who actually knew how to work and how to do things were not well liked. It gets confusing. Yeah, it got confusing. They were called kulaks, and they were usually people of, you know, not very high social status, but 
they were very good at what they did. They were tradesmen, they were carpenters, they were farmers, they were, you know, what have you. And um, as the paranoia grew, as, as the Soviet Union built and Stalin comes to power, uh, that became a very dangerous thing to be, especially someone who was ambitious, uh, mm-hmm. who wanted to do things, who wanted to make their lives better. That was suspect. Uh, it got Adeline's father, who was a highly competent farmer, uh, used to bring in big harvests, and he was sent uh, to uh, Siberia and never heard of again. Uh, Emil's father, Emil Martel's father, was also sent to the mines of Siberia and returned, but he was a broken man. So it was very real in their minds what Stalinism and what the Soviet Union represented. And that leads uh, into a little, um, Emil, w- one of the significant things was, I couldn't help but you know, Chinese communism, same basic thing. Mm-hmm. Um, there's an old saying of um, the tallest poppy gets cut first. Mm-hmm. And your character, well, well, the person of Emil, because it's it's fiction based on truth, but um, made it a point of never drawing any attention to himself, keeping a low profile, doing working only hard enough to get by and not get into right. trouble, but not too hard or be too industrious. That's correct. He learns the lessons well, which is to keep your head down. Don't get noticed. Don't have any ambition. Try to feed your family. The family is what's important. And this actually carries through for much of the story, you know, and all the way until uh, later in the book. I don't want to give a lot of things away, but um, just when you think they're going to make it, you know, they're going to make it to freedom because they're they're they're. 100% plan was they're running with the Nazis that they despise because they know that the Soviets will either kill them or send them to Siberia. And their idea is at some point when they get far enough west, they're going to make a break for the Western allied lines, figuring they'd be able to get a chance at freedom. And uh, they almost get there. You know, they almost get there and Mr. Martel gets grabbed and sent to a Soviet prison camp, which is stunning. And that yeah. now this is the this is the some of the elements that I think are so I mean it's a gut wrenching book mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. I mean I can't read it and not just be troubled all over the place. Like right. you had mentioned the Nazis, though they were running with them, but there was a little period of time where essentially the Bolsheviks came in, they threw them all off the land, threw some yes. in Siberia, starved them, starved. Right. And if I recall, more people died under Stalin than even Hitler. So, I mean, it's like a competition who could kill more. Oh, well, well, yeah, total. That's true. But in Ukraine, Stalin starved uh, 4 million people to death. Stalin right. killed close to 20 million total. That's true. And mo- much of it was in purges uh, post-war. Right. So that, all I'm saying is that it, it, it's it's like your complete nightmare. Right. And for a little bit, the Nazis came in mm-hmm. and, from what I understand, took over the area and they said, hey, you want your land back. The land they that did. just got taken from you that was given right. to you, but taken from you. And now what option would you have if if the devil comes back to your area and you're literally starving and you have an opportunity to actually work the land that your family's been sitting on for a hundred years. Yeah. That's so I think it is hard. Um, But at the same time, they were treated brutally under Stalin. Mm -hmm. You know, there was only one way to describe how ethnic Germans were treated. And that was abject persecution, if not outright murder, 
remember that the Bolshevik Revolution happens near the tail end of World War One. So Germans in general are pariahs. And, you know, he really leans into them when, you know, after the revolution, uh, Lenin and then Stalin, and does persecute them. So I think in Emil's mind, it's like, all right, one devil just left, a new devil came in, but that devil is telling me I can have back my land if I grow wheat for them. And he said, I'm going to do it because it's a better life for my family. Right, and he's in control of it. He's in control of it. Yeah, he knows how to farm. So he goes, and for about 18 months, they have a a decent life. They're not starving. The kids are putting meat on their bones. Um, You know, but things happen, you know, in the immediate wake of them going back to that farm that makes them realize what's really going on behind the Nazi invasion. Because the invasion of the Soviet Union wasn't just that, the, the Mm -hmm. the, the end of a truce between uh, Hitler and Stalin. That, that was broken when he did this. But it's also the first time that um, Heinrich Himmler begins to implement the final solution. And I didn't understand this when I got into the book. So the, the Wehrmacht comes in to Russia in June of 41, and like right behind them come these guys, the Einsatzgruppen. And they are mobile firing squads. Uh, and they have been assigned to start shooting Jews. It was called the Holocaust of Bullets, and the the, the uh, gas chambers and things of this nature were down the road. Uh, yeah, they haven't been invented yet. This, this been actually invented. showed the need for them That's because right. it was so inefficient. They were killing so many people that it took too long to kill all the people, That's right. and they increased, which is just a complete nightmare. I mean, like I was trying to say, I'm not – Oh, this whole thing is such a complete nightmare yeah, that, that I did not know that, true. that yeah. it got its foothold there. Mm-hmm. That's where it really started. And, you know, it it starts very early. And for um, the Martels, I mean, in reality, what it starts as is I'm talking to uh, Emil and Adeline's granddaughter, and she uh, tells me that Adeline told her that after Emil died, that when they were given back the farmland and they moved back to Friedenstahl, he had to go to a town nearby to get roofing supplies for a house he was building for them mm. and, and trying to get up before winter came. And uh, he was supposed to be gone like a day, a day and a half. And he's gone for like four days and she's frantic and he gets back and he's as shaken and, and rattled as he's ever been. And she asks what happened. And he says, I was taken by the Nazis held by the Nazis and forced to bury Jews. And it was like, okay, all right. And, and now I have to deal with this. Right. Uh, and I found that as a storyteller, the thing that makes you the most upset or scared to write about is very much the thing you should face and write about. So how, how, I, how do you do that? Now, I mean, I don't want to take hmm. away from the story, but that's a great point. How do you face that? Because that's, yeah, uh, it, 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 yeah, but and but it, it, when I realized I was going to have to face this, let me just tell you, there was a, a knot in my stomach because the first thing I did was I spent a bunch of time researching in the uh, U.S. Holocaust Museum archives, which is extensive, and uh, Yad Vashem online archives, looking for any mention of Martel, nothing. So that was unequivocal, and I also looked in the Russian, uh, the Soviet Union's files that are that are available they're not all available but the mm-hmm. ones that are available um they weren't there so then it became all right 
you know, I know that the guy's uh, not a war criminal because there was never any evidence ever brought against him or what have you. So how am I going to deal with this? And I learned um, that in several of these colonies where these ethnic Germans used to live, they participated actively in shooting Jews. So I had to take that and the fact that Mr. Martel supposedly only buried Jews. But then I had this other thing that happened when I read that, oh, lo and behold, some of the ethnic Germans, after the fact, said that they only buried Jews when, in fact, witnesses say they shot Jews. So now I've got this very morally murky and difficult thing to to deal with, right? But by facing it head on, which is what I did, I said, okay, this is part of the story. I cannot ignore this. It would be dishonest to ignore it. So I'm going to try to come up with the most interesting way to deal with it. And when I took that approach, the drama of that backstory of what happens to Emil Martel when he goes on that ride with his horses and wagon to get roofing supplies is basically the, the spine of the book. It informs everything about the book because it's the event that causes Emil Martel to lose his faith in God, which is where he is when we meet him at the opening of the book. And I can totally see it and knowing, and yes, you don't tell it right away exactly what happened. You just, it's mm -hmm. it's lingering in the background. Mm -hmm. And that leads into some, uh, again, these questions. Um, have you ever read about the Milgram experiment? No. Okay. I'm, I'm specifically bringing that up because it actually was put together by Stanley Milgram to understand the Nazis and understand why people, and this is something you explored in the book too, mm -hmm. would just commit atrocious acts. However, you, you break it down. And the principle of the experiment is you have somebody in a lab coat who's an authority figure, not even necessarily a doctor. They just, you assume doctor, white lab coat, equal doctor. And the experiment is that there is a student and a teacher. The teacher is the one that is the subject of the experiment. They don't know it. Right. They are teaching a student who's on the other side of the wall and hooked up to an electron, um, a device that will shock them. So yeah, when the teacher comes now. in, they'll hold it, this. they'll get shocked by the device, know it's there. Then right. the person on the other side of the wall is an actor. Right. And they will ask a question, student gets it wrong, and they keep shocking. And about 60% would go to a high enough voltage level to kill the person on the other side of the wall. And that was showing the authority aspect of it sure now you explored i guess the the reframing aspect of how somebody could be driven to do it in the sense that it's going to happen anyway uh -huh. if i don't do it it'll get done to me uh -huh. um and then to just reframe them as somehow being less than, I hate to say human or whatever, to uh -huh. accomplish it. Is uh -huh. this something that you studied and read about, or is that a conclusion you came to as you did the um, 
thought exercise. I, I, I've read about people who have gone in and participated. There was some uh, uh, testimony that was given uh, in the trials against the Einsatzgruppen, where they talked about the collaboration of um, ethnic Germans in the Holocaust in Ukraine. And I read that, and you, you could just see that these people, they would argue that they were, they would have exactly like you said, they'll be shot if they don't. Um, interestingly enough, after the war, when so several of the SS uh, tried to use that as a defense, their their defense attorneys went and looked for a, any case where someone had been shot for refusing to shoot a Jew, and they found none. None. Mm. So that's that's interesting, right? And that, I found that out while I was doing research, and I, I thought a lot about it. Um, but a lot of this is me imagining the scene or knowing enough about the scene. This took place in a in a town called Dubasari, which I've been to and uh, seen, you know, the layout of the land. And in that town, around the time that, I mean, like right on top of the time where Emil Martel did go looking for roofing supplies, uh, the Nazis killed uh, 17,000 Jews in Dubasari and from the area and had uh, some uh, uh, ethnic Germans help them. That's true. That's a part of history. And, and that's so, the one that took um, two or three days to do. Yeah. And it, well, they were yeah, complaining about how long it would take. And that how long it would take. Right. the mm -hmm. nightmares to follow. Scenario. Right. And um, But I, I'll tell you, writing those scenes were some of the worst things I've ever had to do. Because what I was trying to provoke in those scenes is this response. I wanted to read the reader to say, what would I do? What would I have done? How would I have handled it? And to me, that's, you know, when books start becoming transformative mm -hmm. because it forces the reader to face things that they may not want to face or they may not have ever considered before. And to me, that's the fascinating thing about historical fiction is that you, if you look hard enough, you can find these themes and questions or situations where these kinds of questions, what would I have done, surface naturally in the reader's mind. And so I'm looking for that because I want people to struggle with this as, as Emil struggles with it, right? Mm -hmm. Half the book or three quarters of the book is... Um, I mean, it's it's about a ton of things, but the minor thread is this sort of spiritual brawl going on inside Emil Martel's soul, mm -hmm. where he's trying to come to grips with what happened and trying to understand it uh, at a time where he's lost his faith in God. And they all, to some degree, are suffering this. Though. They all, to some degree, are are living with consequences. Of all of this, I mean, it, it, it's, I probably said earlier, but it's haunting. Yeah. The damn book is haunted. Excuse my language, but no, it, it, it really was, it is in that. And, and and when you're thinking about these decisions, I'm, I'm curious because yes, I'm asking myself, what did you conclude? Or did you go back and forth? No, I wouldn't. Yeah, I would. No, I wouldn't. Yeah. No, yeah, I would. I mean, 
What did you conclude to yourself? I'm curious. I never really considered it for myself. My goal was to understand Emil, was to, in a sense, inhabit him. Mm -hmm. I would like to believe that when somebody handed me a pistol and told me to shoot a fellow human being, that I would have the courage to refuse. But who knows? Yeah, Who hard. knows? That's a hard one. Especially when you're watching people all around you being shot. Right? It's not just one person and one thing that comes out of the blue. You're visually seeing row after row after row of people being mm -hmm. shot right in front of you. And I don't know. I mean, I, me thinking about that right now starts to get me upset. And as well, I should. That's payback. Right? I've been reading the book. There you go. I'm not trying to take it lightly. It's very upsetting. And that, yeah. that's why. In I'm... places. But it's also, you know, incredibly life affirming in others. And sure. I, I hope that, you know, people come away from the book having seen ultimately what four people can endure and overcome by relying on the power of love and dog faith in the dreams they hold in their hearts. Because that's really what happens in that book. This mm -hmm. ordeal is, is extraordinary. It's a crucible like I'd never you know, encountered before. And they come out of this crucible good people and ultimately triumphant people. From where they start to where they end is so improbable that it could only happen. It could only happen to someone who came to America. You know, it's mm. it's the only place in the world that that kind of transformation would occur in the course of the same generation. Yeah, yeah, I, I can definitely see that. Yeah, um, and that actually brings up other elements. Like, I mean, one of the biggest monsters in the book was a uh, uh, major, formerly Captain Houseman, mm -hmm. and. Even a real he, person, by the way, right? Well, oh yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. and uh, never, um, never sentenced though. Mm -mm. No, never. he uh, he participated. He was part of the Einsatzgruppe, and he was a captain in it. He participated in atrocities all across the Ukraine and deep in, deeper into the Soviet Union. Um, near the end of the when the when Stalin had counterattacked and won at Stalingrad, and then pushed the Germans back along the Dnieper River. Um, he was reassigned and told to protect the 120,000 um, ethnic Germans uh, who were living in uh, parts of Ukraine at that time. And they were, turns out they were under direct orders from Heinrich Himmler to do so, because Himmler believed that these ethnic Germans who had lived in isolation on these colonies, they were the last pure Aryan blood on earth. And he wanted it protected, and he wanted it brought back to Germany. Which, Which is they, very they, yeah. The Martels have no idea about this when it starts, but they're mm -hmm. forced to encounter it. And right. again, you know, when I found this out, I was like, "All right, how do I handle this?" Well, you handle it by facing it. You don't ignore it. You face it. And so they figure this out, and they figure out that not only is are they being protected, but when they get to Poland, this place loads Poland, which is the Ellis Island of the Third Reich, they are deloused in these big stations and then given new clothes and then given quarters to live in. Well, the new clothes are from Jews who have been taken off to Auschwitz, and the quarters are 
used to be the uh, quarters of Jews who were living in the ghettos of Lodz Poland and who were evacuated literally two weeks before the, the these ethnic Germans start showing up. Which, by so, the way, I, I get, yeah. no, I got to get a visit yeah. that for a minute because, right. um, you know, it is a high point impactful scene, but the delousing chambers obviously mm-hmm. were a reflection of a different kind of chamber mm-hmm. that came later. Mm-hmm. Only these were to promote health in right. the people by getting rid of a virus versus the other chamber, which gets rid of people. And I'm, I'm sure the parallel was obvious to in your mind as you're writing this it was. out and torturing your reader. But uh, <laughs> that was incredibly impactful and powerful for that to happen. And then for them to walk out and say, wow, these clothes are n- kind of nice. I, I can't believe it. Yeah. And then to come to realize that again, ah, is such a nightmare because they're benefiting off of pure abject evil and suffering. They are. And it's, it's a very morally complicated ocean that they're forced to swim across and to deal with. Because again, you know, this, when I got interested in them and I was struck by this was that, you know, you read stories about soldiers in war, about politicians in war, spies in war, you know, I wrote a story about a guide, you know, a kid who becomes a witness to history. Mm-hmm. But what about the people who are just trying to get out of the way, right? Mm-hmm. And then I found out that something like 60, 65 million people were displaced during the course of World War II. That means their home was gone and they were walking. 65 million people, right? So there was an aspect of the war that I had never read about. I mean, I'm sure there are books about it, but I had never read about one never in a meaningful it. way. And I was like, all right, this is why I want to do it. I want to tell a story about people trying to get out of the way. But the more I dug into the story, you know, the more challenging it became. And the more things that that I had to face with what what does it feel like to wear clothes that belong to someone you just realized was murdered by the government that's benefiting? Right. Yeah. So I'm asking all these difficult questions of the reader because they were asked of the Martels, right? Who are essentially good people who are thrust into the middle of this. And and how do they deal with it? How do they deal with it mentally? I mean, when Mrs. Martel finds out, she's like just savaged because she had worked for a Jewish woman when she was younger, a woman mm-hmm. who had a very profound effect on her life and how she saw life. So again, um, who saved what I've her learned, in a lot of ways? Yeah, yeah saved her in a lot of ways. That's right. And uh, I, I just found in the course of, of writing beneath the scarlet sky, and then having the experience reinforced with the last green valley, is that the best thing you can do as a, an author, a, a dramatist, an artist, is to face the thing that scares you. Face the thing that you don't think you can handle as a as a a writer. Um, hmm. What do you do as you're doing? Do you, I mean, do you just power through it, or do you skip around a little bit and say, "I know I write in a straight line." I write. I write. I've I've thought about it a lot before <laughs> I write it, and I know a lot, and I have an outline. It's usually very detailed, sometimes two hundred pages long, 
And, and it's all sorts of stuff. It could be just sketches of scenes that have come into my mind, dialogue, because I know the point of the scenes, right? I know what's supposed right. to happen. Uh, largely, much of this is dictated by the course of the journey and what happened on this journey. And um, so I follow it, right? Just as I followed it in the research. And when I write it, you know, I, I realize that the story is really the story of the journey. But it's, as you said, you, you have to understand what happened before to really get this all in context. And you have to understand the way they were treated under Stalin, what their lives were like, the fact that they did starve, the fact that they were thrown off their lands, the fact that they were given a break for the first time in 20 years, and all of a sudden it's blowing up again. So everything is thrown into, into the air. And I've decided to start the book right at that moment of terrible choice, the first of terrible choices that we see in the mm -hmm. book. And that's, do I stay and wait for the Soviets? Or do we run with the Nazis, right? Sure. Neither of them is a good answer. Right? No. Neither of them. They're both terrible answers. But what are you going to do? And what are they going to do? And so I put them under the pressure right away. And I guess and, there, there was a slight aspect of, of the Nazis I think most would choose just because it is less known. Like, they've already done the uh, life under the Soviets, Yes, that, that equaled Siberia, that equaled one lost father and another father mentally lost, essentially, sure. or broken by the time he came back. Correct. So, okay, we Land, found that one. We know where that's going. Yep. We're starved, everything. Um, but, got all that but, covered. But they know enough about the Nazis having lived under 18, 20 months of uh, German occupation that they know that these guys are really no better. The only difference is they've promised to treat them well and to protect right. them. So, you know, what are you going to do? Are you going to be under the protection of one army or at the mercy of another? True. It's, it's, it's interesting. It's and it, it, another thing that drew me to the story and made me so interesting, interested in it was all these morally fraught decisions they have to make as they go. Yeah. And, um, and I was going to point out too that even the ultimate monster in it, Houseman, mm -hmm. acted in a life-saving manner in a particular incident, and and acted yes. like a good person in that he did. moment. He did. Uh, you know, surprisingly, well, first one there, yep. uh, besides them to help in an incident, and I. Yeah. I can appreciate that. So that's that's a whole thing of nobody's evil 100% of the time. Correct. Correct. And because you got to remember is that I I used to be a reporter. I did a lot of crime reporting, investigative things. And what you find is you could talk to the um, most stone cold serial killer. And I've talked to a couple of them. And in their mind, they're good people. Nobody's 100%. a villain in their own story. Nobody's right? a villain in their own mind. And but no one is all one way either. Right. Not everybody is a, is an out and out sadist. Uh, in fact, I would argue that out and out sadists are rare to the point of being pathologically something wrong with their brain versus ordinary people being shoved into positions of power and the power over life and death. Boy, that creates a very different cat. Right. It's a very different person. It's a whole different set of circumstances. And yet. I think that even within those people, there exists some humanity. 
And that's demonstrated when Hausman, he sees a, a horrific accident and mm-hmm. of, of somebody and he's right there. And it's almost like he's so shocked by what's happened that his deeply buried humanity comes out in just an instinctual response to help someone. But, yeah. you know, someone also pointed out to me that, you know, that, that the, the real valuable possession or the object of desire in Hausman at that point is the blood flowing in the veins of all these ethnic Germans. Sure. So if this person bleeds to death, no blood. Yeah, right? Sure. No German I mean, blood. But, but it's more about facing and the humanity that comes out in him. And then to have the reader wasn't realize, a Jew. We'll, we'll say it that way. It, it was not, it's not a Jew. Jewish because he would not no. have jumped to help on that. Probably not. So, it was an ethnic yeah. German. Um, but until that point, he's been largely just a cold son of a bitch. And all of a sudden something human comes up in him and he acts to, to save her. So yeah. it's uh, fascinating. Yeah. No, uh, I appreciate that also. Now, from what I've seen, interviews and things like that, are you shifting away from thrillers to almost exclusively historical fiction now? Yes. Okay. And I was curious, is this because, and I could be wrong, I'm just guessing, that this is bringing your two lives together, as in you were a journalist before and an author now, and I would think that some of what you're doing now taps into your journalistic background on research, interviewing. I I always used that skill set because I was a reporter first and it was just natural by the time I jumped to novels to go find people who knew what they were talking about and ask them questions. You know, don't reinvent the wheel. Don't try to imagine it wholly. Try to figure out someone who understands your characters or the situation that drew you to write the the thriller or the mystery novel. Because my early stuff was all based on things I went and did and tried but you know going making the jump to historical fiction and stuff that's based on actual events actual characters it it just demanded that i think differently it demanded that i write differently and so what's the biggest difference well a mystery and a thriller are largely an intellectual exercise right mm. it's it's a lot of time spent in your brain and you're devising a mystery or a puzzle or a situation that will take the reader on an amazing ride. Now that doesn't mean you can't write something amazingly moving as a suspense writer or a mystery writer. Cause of course you can, you know, mm-hmm. you just have to bring the chops to it and go for it. Um, but uh, the skill set that required that, that was required of beneath the scarlet sky and certainly the last green Valley was different. I wanted to keep all those storytelling skills that were hard won for me and use them to tell, you know, a story very dynamically. I, for this, a story this tough in a sense, if if it was bogged down, I think people wouldn't keep reading. So I wanted to tell the story at a, at a ferocious clip because it took place at a ferocious clip really. And, um, I wanted to force the readers into all sorts of situations where they were getting upset and, you know, just like the Martells, I wanted them to face it going all the way through. And how have these stories affected your life coming out of it? Well, I mean, 
Beneath the Scarlet Sky taught me the total miracle of life, even when it's terrible. You know, if you can't lose track of the fact that you're walking around thinking, speaking, acting, and yeah, life may be, you know, dumping on you, but there's, you're still there. You're still experiencing this. And if you keep looking for it, you start to find small miracles in your life. And that changed me. Uh, that perspective, instead of always looking for what was wrong, that's easily found. But so is what's right. And using what's right and valuing the people who come into your life and cherishing the memories of the people who go out of them it are things that I learned from Pinot. And just like when I started researching the Martells and I interviewed Walter and, and uh, Bill at length about their parents, I really got a sense of, oh my God, look, like, look at the resilience of these people. Mm-hmm. It's just simply remarkable. They're unwilling to quit. It's like they're just, there's no quit in them. And that alone will change your life. That resilience is fundamental in the course of a life. That you are going to face challenges. You are going to encounter tragedies in your own personal life, close to you you will know people that will break your heart and you will have situations that will break your heart. But ultimately it's the meaning we give those situations, you know, how we use them to propel ourselves forward and be resilient. That is really life-changing. And it was reinforced certainly by the Martells. I've never met people who've gone through their, what they went through and, and to, finally stand and triumph was just, it was powerful for me. And and I know, you know, my oldest son is also a novelist. I'll give a plug for him, Connor Sullivan. He's got his first book coming out in July. Yep. The Sleeping Bear. It's an awesome thriller. One of the best I've, first debut thrillers I've ever read. And uh, there's a lot of people who think so as well. Um, But he read uh, The Last King Valley in manuscript. He was the first person to read it. And he read it last year during the pandemic, you know, early in the year, right after it happened. And mm. he said the whole time, he said, first of all, it's like being in a fist fight, right? You're getting hit with stuff. Yeah. yeah. Good analogy. Right. And, and he said, but more than that is like when I saw what they went through and what they were enduring and what they would overcome. And it was like the next one was worse. And the next one was worse. He said, all I was being asked to do was, wear a mask and watch a bunch of Netflix, you know, right. quit, quit whining, man, you know, and be grateful that you have the ability to put on a mask and watch Netflix and, you know, have the ability to live and work and have a roof over your head. And, you know, he said that that's what he got out of it, that he was just amazed at the constancy of them in holding, especially Adeline in holding on to this dream of reaching a beautiful green Valley that they could call their own. And, you know, that's a great metaphor in the, in the book. And it's, uh, it's the title of the book. And they also wound up in Bozeman, uh, Montana, which I haven't been to Bozeman, but I have been to Flat Lake. Area. Flathead Lake? Oh, really? Yeah. Which is nice. gorgeous. Yeah, oh, I own there. a home on Flathead Lake. Oh, oh, Flathead Lake. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. And, um, glaciers beautiful and the prince of wales is the most beautiful view i've ever seen in my life looking back at the states yeah so i imagine they found that fertile green valley they did 
you know, the Gallatin Valley is the last green valley for them. And for me, this is where I found happiness. And that is a perfect note to wrap it up on. I'm really, really impressed with the book. It is a amazing journey. And I think it's, it's good for beating you down to maybe um, let you see joy around you. Like, Oh, I guess that's not so bad. Or, Oh, isn't right. that neat? Or, right. Oh, I have dinner tonight because that's a big part of it too. Is, yeah. Oh, look, look how much food I'm eating. Jeez. I'm a glutton. There's yeah. so much food everywhere. So bountiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And thank you very much for that. Now, everybody, it's the last green Valley. It's coming out next week next tuesday week from tomorrow next tuesday excellent so hopefully this will get a bump and i really 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 encourage everybody to check it out thanks so much eric i really thanks so much for listening and if you would like even more content and community please consider joining my locals at unstructured.locals.com And you can always find out more about me and my shows and everything I do at erichunley.com. See you next time.